homicides, continents apart, all looked like professional executions. Were they related? Interpol, the FBI, and local law enforcement searched for the answer. They found it in an old typewriter and a used piece of tape. On a January morning in 1994, a surveyor charted land in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains. The work is time-consuming and exacting. On this day, however, he saw more than the topography of the landscape. In the snow, the surveyor found the body of a middle-aged man. It was completely nude. There was two obvious gunshot wounds, one to the neck and one to the head of the victim. It was clear this was an execution-style killing perpetrated by a professional. The primary reason that clothing would be removed from a body at a crime scene would be to get rid of any trace evidence. But the killer left one potential clue. A few feet from the body, investigators found a 16-inch piece of black electrical tape. It appeared to have a small hole in it that would be consistent with a gunshot hole, some red droplets, which we later confirmed to be blood, and some human head hair on the piece of tape. Apparently, the tape had been used to gag him. The blood and hair were from the victim. A check of missing persons reports identified him as 40-year-old Victor Gunnarsson a Swedish citizen who had been living in the United States for the last several years. Gunnarsson was well known to international law enforcement. A few years earlier, he was the chief suspect in one of the greatest unsolved murder cases of the 20th century, the assassination of Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palma. It happened on a bitter, cold night in 1986. Olaf Palma and his wife went to the movies. They had given their bodyguards the night off. As they walked out of the theater, witnesses said a man approached them. They had a brief conversation. As Palma walked away, the man fired two shots into his back. Olaf Palma had been shot straight through the spinal column, straight through the aorta. Olaf Palma was actually dead before he hit the ground. Swedish officials suspected Victor Gunnarsson was involved. He was a right-wing extremist. He matched the general description of the assassin, and witnesses saw him in a bar near the movie theater that evening, voicing his hatred of Palma and his politics. But when none of the eyewitnesses could pick him out of the police lineup, he was released. The name Victor Gunnarsson became a hated one in Sweden and Gunnarsson became a pariah. It was impossible for him to find paid employment. People screamed murderer at him in the streets, and he realized that he couldn't live on in Sweden. Gunnarsson fled to the United States, and now, eight years later, he was on an autopsy table in North Carolina. There is a conspiracy theory saying that the CIA had Olaf Palmer murdered and that they employed Victor Gunnarsson as the hitman. And then, of course, it was the CIA who bumped off Victor Gunnarsson in 
Salisbury, North Carolina, to tie up loose ends. Either way, investigators on two continents were very interested in finding Gunnarsson's killer. fled Sweden after he was questioned in connection with the assassination of the Prime Minister, Olaf Palma. He settled in the small town of Salisbury, North Carolina, and found work as a language tutor. According to friends, he liked the United States a lot. Victor had quite a reputation as a ladies' man. He was also known to just walk up to any stranger and start up a conversation and end up going home, visiting with them for several days. Sometimes Victor Gunnarsson tried to attract his lady friends by claiming to be a famous American film director who would make them stars. At other times, he produced a fake FBI badge from his wallet saying he was a secret agent on a mission. During the autopsy, the medical examiner confirmed that Gunnarsson was killed with a 22 caliber weapon. And he also found the clue about the time of death. In the case of Mr. Gunnarsson, found what I recognized or thought to be potato skins, which would indicate that in his last meal he had something like a baked potato. Undigested food meant that Gunnarsson was killed within four hours of his last meal. The last known person to see Gunnarsson alive was a girlfriend, Kay Whedon, a local school teacher. She was able to confirm a time that they ate and able to confirm the fact that at the time they ate that Victor Gunnarsson had in fact consumed potatoes. Kay Whedon said Gunnarsson dropped her off at home around 11 p.m. and she never saw him again. Victor and I said goodnight right on the front porch stoop of my house, and he kissed me goodnight. We do believe he made it back to his apartment that night um, because his vehicle was parked in front of the apartment as he customarily parked it. There were no signs of forced entry to Gunnarsson's apartment or any kind of a struggle. With Olaf Palma's assassination still unsolved, Swedish authorities kept close tabs on the investigation. They were interested in what we found in Victor's apartment, in his writings and that kind of thing, but we did not come across anything that would link him uh, directly to the assassination. Four days after Gunnarsson's murder, Kay Whedon experienced another tragedy. Her 77-year-old mother, Catherine Miller, was gunned down in her home. There was no forced entry. It was apparently someone she knew or someone she trusted. She had allowed that person to come in, and the person had shot her as she stood there at the stove fixing her supper. Like Gunnarsson, Miller was shot twice in the head, execution style. But it wasn't with the same weapon. This was a 38 caliber. In a matter of days, two people close to Kay Whedon were murdered. And Kate told police that she, too, had reason to fear for her life. For the past year, she had been receiving threatening letters and phone calls. Tell your boyfriend, too, uh, we've seen him and his buddy sitting in the car tonight. And the next time, the 
In another, the caller demanded $2,000 and said if it wasn't paid, her son would be hurt. I didn't know who would have done anything like that. And again, it's very difficult to be afraid when you don't know who or what to be afraid of. Kay told investigators she didn't have any enemies, only an ex-fiancee, L.C. Underwood, a retired police officer who behaved badly after their breakup. I was dating a gentleman for the first time, and we had gone to a restaurant, and L.C. came barging into the restaurant. And he looked down at the glass of iced tea and looked up, looked at me, and picked it up and dumped it in my lap. Since then, however, Kay said her relationship with Underwood had improved. And it wasn't Underwood's voice on those threatening telephone calls. Police wanted to interview Elsie Underwood about this matter, but he refused. When they checked Underwood's whereabouts for the night of Victor Gunnarsson's murder, they learned he called a friend in the police department asking him to run a license plate number. I need you to run 1048 for me. Lay it on me. Uh, David Paul Williams, 7098. Hey, this comes back to the 79 Lincoln four door. First name is T, as in Victor. The last name is G U N N A R S S O N. A few hours later, Victor Gunnarsson was dead. Homicide investigators usually don't believe in coincidence. Not long after Kay Whedon breaks off her engagement to Elsie Underwood, she starts receiving threatening letters and telephone calls. Shortly after that, both her mother and new boyfriend are murdered. A background check revealed Underwood had three failed marriages and several women had filed complaints against him. It became apparent that he had problems in dealing with women. He had a past history of stalking, of harassing women, of uh, vandalizing personal items owned by these women when the relationships began to sour. To see if Underwood was behind the threatening letters sent to Kay Wheaton's home, police confiscated Underwood's electric typewriter and sent it to document examiner David Dunn. This ribbon could have been in the typewriter for months, possibly years. It will go through the machine one time and one time only. It leaves a permanent record of the document that was typed with that ribbon. The ribbon on this typewriter moves up and down, so the letters strike the ribbon in vertical columns. It was a ribbon that had a three-strike pattern. In other words, the type element typed in three rows of letters. Dunn searched the ribbon for words or phrases that appeared in the threatening letters to Kay Whedon. A key phrase was, Roses are red, which appeared numerous times. As I was reading and looking at the ribbon, all of a sudden I see, bam, the roses are red. I said, I think I have the document. But as any examiner will know, you can't just stop as soon as you find one or two words. 
Dunn found whole sentences from the letters, and there was no doubt they had been typed on Underwood's typewriter. I had no idea. I was completely and totally flabbergasted when the detectives told me that Elsie was responsible for sending the letters. With a warrant, investigators searched Underwood's home and found it was spotless. He was obsessive, almost to the point of being too clean. He would vacuum right after you left a room. He would empty the ashtray right after you used it. And everything was to the point of almost too perfect. There was nothing suspicious within view, and investigators didn't find any firearms. But in the laundry room behind the washer, they found some black electrical tape wrapped around the exhaust pipe. Magnified 50 times, it looked like the same kind of tape found near Gunnarsson's body. We look at the width, we look at the thickness, we look at the composition of the backing and the composition of the adhesive. A Fourier transform infrared analysis provided even more information. You're passing an infrared beam through the material, or if you're using reflectance mode, you're bouncing the infrared beam off the surface, and you're looking at the total absorbance. In both tape samples, there were identical amounts of absorption. This meant the tape in Underwood's home was the same brand and possibly from the same roll as the piece used to gag Victor Gunnarsson. It does indicate it's possible they came from the same roll or from the same manufacturer. Finally, investigators checked Underwood's car. A few days after the murders of Victor Gunnarsson and Catherine Miller, Underwood, in two different trips, took both of his vehicles to Sam's car wash. He instructed the person there at the car wash to give him the works. That is to completely uh, clean the vehicle back in the trunk. They found what looked like scuff marks in the trunk, although the trunk liner was spotless. The investigator used fiber tape to pick up any loose items. The liner was so clean, he was about to give up. Then he saw something embedded deep in the fibers. When I spotted it, I'm going, how in the world can I not see it the first time, uh, going through it? When I saw the hair there, I took another piece of tape out and tried to blot it off, and it would not come off on my lip. They were matted down into the surface of the mat in one particular area. So he pulled each hair out individually. All told, there were 16 strands of hair. Since none had the root, nuclear DNA testing was impossible. But they tried a less definitive test of the mitochondria. Mitochondria contain genetic information that exists outside the cell nucleus. FBI scientists ran two sets of tests. The first on the trunk hair, the second on Gunnarsson's blood. The result, like these demonstration tests, was a perfect match. Solid proof that Gunnarsson had been inside Underwood's trunk. That was most satisfying and probably the happiest day during the course of the investigation that I had. Elsie Underwood was arrested and charged with murder. 
He insisted, however, that he was innocent. Prosecutors now had proof that L.C. Underwood sent the threatening letters to Kay Whedon. He also owned electrical tape that matched tape found near Victor Gunnarsson's body, and Gunnarsson's head hair was found in his trunk. Prosecutors don't think the motive was revenge, but jealousy. Despite the breakup, Underwood wanted Kay Whedon back in his life, so he tried to create as much havoc in her life as possible, thinking it would create vulnerability. Kay Whedon was very dependent on her mother, as many people are. If Catherine Miller and Victor Gunnarsson were both eliminated, Kay Whedon had only Elsie Underwood to turn to. Underwood typed the threatening letters on his work typewriter and had someone else make the threatening phone calls, but that plan didn't work. Underwood apparently was stalking Kay. He drove by Kay's home one night and didn't recognize the strange car parked in front. I need you to write 1028 for me. Uh, David Paul Williams, 7098. Underwood traced the license plate number and had all the information he needed. He went to Gunnarsson's apartment, abducted him at gunpoint, forced him into the trunk of his car and drove to a deserted location 90 miles away. Underwood marched him into the woods, ordered him to remove his clothes, and killed him. He removed as much evidence as he could, but dropped a piece of tape that matched tape found inside his home. He also had his car thoroughly washed inside and out but 16 of Gunnarsson's head hairs remained. Victor Gunnarsson was simply a victim of very, very bad timing in his life. He had only known Kay Whedon for two to three weeks at the time he was murdered, did not know anything about Elsie Underwood. Prosecutors say Underwood went to Kay's mother's home a few days later and killed her, too. There were several witnesses who had seen Mr. Underwood possess a 38 caliber Colt, snub-nosed revolver, and that revolver also had been loaned to another friend of his. And on the night of Catherine Miller's murder, Elsie Underwood had gone to that person and reclaimed that particular firearm. So we felt that that was, in fact, the 38 caliber weapon that, uh, that killed Catherine Miller. But investigators were never able to recover either murder weapon. A jury found Elsie Underwood guilty of Victor Gunnarsson's murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was very diligent in covering his tracks. And had it not been for modern technology, we may not have been able to um, convict him perhaps 
without the evidence that we now have. I don't think that he ever would have been caught if it hadn't been for the forensics evidence and the mitochondrial DNA used in Victor's case.